A mass shooting this morning at the 4th of July parade in Highland Park outside Chicago. At least six people are dead, about 24 hospitalized. The suspect is still on the loose and police consider him armed and dangerous. Our story is coming up on this Independence Day. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Communities from Evanston, Illinois to Skokie have today canceled Fourth of July festivities out in an abundance of caution. Descendants of Frederick Douglass read excerpts of one of his most famous speeches called What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Douglas gave the speech to a group of abolitionists 170 years ago. Even with gasoline prices at record highs, people in urban areas are not flocking to mass transit. We'll hear how public transportation has a lot of work to do to lure people back. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Today, north of Chicago, a traditional American celebration turned into an all-too-familiar scene, that of a mass shooting. This one at a 4th of July parade. Six people are dead, more than two dozen injured, in Highland Park, Illinois. Police say the gunman is still on the loose and the community is locked down. Lake County Sheriff's Deputy Christopher Cavelli says a high-powered rifle was recovered from the scene. Very sad situation where it sounds like spectators were, were targeted and, and even those that were marching through Amaroni Garcia was one of those spectators. I remember hearing shootings and going like, that's and then reloading and then again, and people screaming and running. She was with her daughter. They ran and hid in a store. I didn't stay there because I was afraid that there was going to be people coming towards us and we weren't going to be safe. Police are asking for witnesses to step forward with information. In Akron, Ohio, 4th of July festivities are also canceled and a state of emergency is in effect. From member station WKSU, Kabir Bhatia reports people are demonstrating against last week's fatal shooting of a black man who police say shot at them as he fled a traffic stop. Protesters marched peacefully through downtown Akron on Sunday after the release of body cam footage showing 25-year-old Jalen Walker being shot dozens of times by police. But overnight, the city says protesters damaged property and broke store windows. There's now a 9 p.m. until 6 a.m. curfew in place until further notice. Walker reportedly fled a traffic stop last Monday, and police say he fired a shot from his car but left the weapon behind when he fled on foot. After the shooting, Mayor Dan Horrigan said this was not the time for celebration and canceled the city's annual 4th of July festivities. For NPR News, I'm Kabir Bhatia in Akron. The U.S. State Department has concluded that the Israeli army was likely responsible for killing a Palestinian-American journalist in the occupied West Bank in May, and it is urging accountability. But NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv, Israel has not taken responsibility. Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akleh was killed while covering an Israeli arrest raid. A United Nations review and some media analyses found Israeli forces likely killed her. The Palestinian Authority this weekend gave the bullet to a U.S. representative who oversaw an examination. The State Department says the bullet was badly damaged and the forensic examination was inconclusive. But it said the U.S. has reviewed Israeli and Palestinian official investigations and concluded that gunfire from Israeli army positions was likely responsible, though unintentional. Israel has not endorsed that conclusion. Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz said, quote, Palestinian terrorists operating in a civilian population are chiefly responsible. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. It's NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. More road closures are now in effect around the Esplanade prior to tonight's concert and fireworks show. Starting this hour, Memorial Drive is closed in both directions between the Longfellow and BU bridges. Storrow Drive is closed to traffic in both directions between Leverett Circle and University Avenue at Boston University. State police are gearing up for the Boston Pops concert and fireworks. This is the first time the event's being held at the Hatch Shell since the pandemic began. State Police Colonel Christopher Mason says there'll be a stronger troop presence and security checkpoints. Visitors to the venue can still expect to be uh, go, going through a security process, much like you would go through the airport. You'll be wanted. Uh, there'll be a baggage check that's done by a private vendor. Mason says there'll be fewer food vendors on site this year, so visitors are advised to bring food and snacks, but coolers with wheels are prohibited. Sam Schinker is here from Ohio for tonight's concert and fireworks show. They say they drove 13 hours straight to be here. The passion, the magic of being here and hearing the pops and just the spectacular energy, both from the orchestra, from maestro Keith Lockhart, from the crowd, is indescribable. It's electric. It's unlike anything else. Tonight's concert starts at 8. The fireworks display is set to start at 1030. State's Attorney General's office is releasing guidelines for people considering installing solar panels on their homes. Elizabeth Mahoney is the senior policy advisor for energy with the AG's office. She says residents should treat solar installation like any other major purchase and always ask for a consumer disclosure form. If you ask for two or three quotes, you should be getting that same form and you can compare information from one point to the next without having to fiddle around with different contracts. You've got the same form to compare right next to one another. Mahoney says there are different options such as leasing solar panels or buying them outright. She says another option is community solar that's buying a share of power from a solar farm. Red Sox are leading the Tampa Bay Rays over at Fenway 2 to nothing in the eighth inning. Should have a nice night. We're watching fireworks. Just a few clouds around. Overnight lows about 64. Tomorrow, partly sunny. Maybe a quick afternoon shower. How's it? About 86 degrees. 81 degrees now on this Independence Day in the Boston area. The time is 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a privacy company committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer private search and tracker blocking with one download. DuckDuckGo, Privacy Simplified. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. There has been another mass shooting, this one earlier today, at a 4th of July parade in Highland Park, Illinois. That's a suburb north of Chicago. Officials say six people are dead, and at least two dozen were taken to local hospitals. NPR's Cheryl Corley is on the scene and joins us now. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. So what are you seeing and hearing right now where you are? Well, right now we uh, are just getting information from uh, law enforcement officials. And what we see here is just this mass um, grouping of law enforcement. There are police cars from from every um, suburb around the area. There's also state police, the FBI. Um, Across the street there are residents who are watching Uh, what's going on as well. But right now, um, everybody is just in a fearful kind of situation here if they're residents. Right. I understand this happened around 10, 15 a.m. your time. Several hours have passed, obviously, since then. And the shooter has still not been apprehended. Is that correct? 
Yeah, there's a big manhunt underway. Authorities are still urging caution, urging people to shelter in place and stay off the street. Here's Chris O'Neill, the incident commander for the Highland Park Police Department. Highland Park Police and numerous federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies are searching for the suspect. The suspect is currently described as a male white, approximately 18 to 20 years old, with longer black hair, a small build, and wearing a white or blue t-shirt. Now, O'Neill said they did recover a firearm, apparently a rifle at the scene. He said, so far, this appears to be a random act. They really haven't identified any motive. He also debunked rumors that the shooter had taken hostages. He says that's not accurate, but still, it's a very dangerous situation. Right. Okay. And officials say six people are dead. Cheryl, what additional details do we know about what happened today? Well, it appears that the gunman fired from a rooftop with a high-powered rifle. Officials say he was well concealed when he opened fire. Uh, witnesses who were at the scene uh, described being uh, shots, a lot of shots being fired very quickly, then seeing people on the ground and just a lot of confusion and chaos as the parade crowd tried to flee. Chris Covelli is with the Lake County Sheriff's Office. Some hospitals did require going on bypass due to receiving uh, traumatic victims and such a high number of them. And their conditions range, some critical, some serious. But uh, so far, the victims haven't been officially identified. But as you say, uh, six so far is the number of fatalities yeah. that we know of. Yeah. And this happened, I mean, as people were taking part in a Fourth of July parade, it was a happy celebration. As you're talking to people out there, as you're hearing from officials, how have people been reacting? Well, you know, it's just devastating. Uh, obviously, uh, this comes in the context of chronic mass shootings this year. Uh, but people have been expecting this to be just a wonderful holiday. Uh, you know, there have been roughly 250 mass shooting incidents in the U.S. in 2022 so far, according to NPR's tally. And here's Highland Park Mayor Nancy Rottering. She spoke On the at a day press that conference. we came together to celebrate community and freedom, we're instead mourning the loss, the tragic loss of life and struggling with the terror that was brought upon us. So, yeah, she's describing this as an act of terrorism. And uh, Congressman Brett Schneider, who represents the Highland Park area, he was also at the parade when the shooting started. And uh, he posted on Twitter voicing sorrow for the families. And Schneider says he's just committed to do everything I can to make our children, our towns, our nation safer. And he added, quote, that enough is enough. And real quick, what are the next steps in the investigation now? Well, many of tonight's for. All right. It looks like our line was just cut off. That was NPR's Cheryl Corley reporting from Highland Park, Illinois. To the American slave is your 4th of July? That is a question Frederick Douglass posed 170 Julys ago. A group of abolitionists had invited him to speak on the 4th, but he opted instead for the 5th and gave perhaps his most famous speech. That speech confronted the glaring hypocrisy of a day celebrating freedom in a country that still endorsed the bondage and forced labor of more than one in eight of its residents. And while the institution of slavery has been abolished, its consequences have endured through the generations. 
I am the great, great, great granddaughter of Frederick. Frederick Douglass is my great, great, great. I've been great. counting on my fingers since yeah. I was like five. I am the great, 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 great grandchild of Frederick Douglass. Two years ago, NPR asked some of Frederick Douglass's descendants to read excerpts of that speech, one that still troubles the conscience of America. And today, we thought we would revisit his words. This is the 4th of July. It is the birthday of your national independence and of your political freedom. Fellow citizens, I shall not presume to dwell at length on the associations that cluster about this day. The simple story of it is that 76 years ago, the people of this country were British subjects. Oppression makes a wise man mad. Your fathers were wise men, and if they did not go mad, they became restive under this treatment. With brave men, there's always a remedy for oppression. They succeeded, and today you reap the fruits of their success. The freedom gained is yours, and you, therefore, may properly celebrate this anniversary. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty and unholy license. Your national greatness, swelling vanity. Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings. With all your religious parade and solemnity are to him Mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. 
allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. The 4th of July still doesn't mean that much. Um, we're still second-class citizens. I don't think it's hopeless. Somebody once said that pessimism is a tool of white oppression, and I think that's true. I think in many ways we are still um, slaves to the notion that it will never get better. But I think that there is hope, um, and I think it's important that we celebrate Black joy and Black life, and we remember that change is possible, change is probable, um, and that there's hope. That was Isidore Douglas Skinner. You also heard Alexa Ann Watson, Haley Rose Watson, Zoe Douglas Skinner, and Douglas Washington Morris II, all of them descendants of Frederick Douglass, reading his speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? You can watch a video of that reading and more of their reflections at npr.org. Protest movements can spur different ideologies, new policies, and sometimes new playlists. Some of the most popular songs in American history began as responses to or calls for social change. Hear more about their history and why this year's Song of the Summer could very well be a song of protest. Today on the Consider This podcast from NPR News. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. In parts of the U.S., traditional 4th of July fireworks displays are being replaced by large swarms of small drones with colored lights. It reduces wildfire risk, pollution, and loud noises. That story is coming up. Wall Street is closed for the 4th. Good news if you're behind the wheel on this Independence Day holiday. The average price of regular gas in Massachusetts has dropped to $4.85 a gallon. According to AAA, that's 8 cents lower than a week ago and slightly above the national average. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios designed to help create a healthy planet and just society. Zevin.com slash WBUR. Over at Fenway Park, Red Sox are now leading the Tampa Bay Rays 3 to nothing in the eighth inning. Join Rebecca Shear, host of WBUR's children's podcast Circle Round, on Saturday, July 9th at City Space to celebrate the launch of Circle Round's picture books. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures Talk at LizLinder.com. And 1776 at the ART. See the revival of the Tony-winning musical that WBUR called Electrifying, now through July 24th, amrep.org. 
may not think it, but today, planet Earth is the farthest away from the sun than it'll be all year. That's about 94.5 million miles away, give or take. The planet always reaches this far-flung point in the summertime in the northern hemisphere, according to Earth's sky. In the winter, six months from now, we should be about 3 million miles closer, spitting distance. 81 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. For many of the families of the migrants who died after being transported in a sweltering trailer in San Antonio, Texas, the past week has been agonizing. Authorities have urged patience as they scrambled to identify the 53 victims of what is being called one of the worst human smuggling tragedies on U.S. soil. As NPR's Carrie Kahn reports, this weekend, relatives of three young men from a small town in Mexico finally learned the heartbreaking news. Pickup trucks loaded with freshly cut firewood gunned up the steep road in front of Bilbano Olveras' home in the small town tucked into the lush mountains in Mexico's Gulf state of Veracruz. Men dumped the logs beside a black tarp shielding the steady stream of mourners who've come to pay their respects. We need a lot of wood for cooking to feed everyone, says Olivares. Toda la gente comparte los sufrimientos de las familias. Here, everyone shares in the suffering of the families, he says. Olivares' three grandchildren, brothers Giovanni, 16, and Jair, 20, as well as their cousin, Misael, also 16, were all in the Texas trailer. Authorities last week notified relatives that Misael had been found dead. On Saturday, Olivares says authorities summoned the family to the capital, an hour ride down the mountain. Even then, we were still holding out hope they were alive, he said. But no. His daughter, Yolanda Olivares, says at least now she knows her boys are with God. I'm sad right now, but a lot more calm. Now I know they're no longer suffering, alone in a hospital bed fighting for their lives, not knowing where they were. It's all been such a nightmare. Olivari stares forward, her eyes puffy from days of crying and no sleep. She sits on the small stoop of her modest house. Inside, the front room is filled with pictures of her boys and burning candles. Life here is hard, she says. It's a small town known in this region for making shoes. Like most everyone here, her sons cut leather, fitted soles and sewed shoes in small workshops. Pay isn't much, at most 50 pesos a pair. One makes about 50 U.S. dollars a week. That's if you sew fast. Bells summon residents who trickle down the town's dirt paths and steep streets onto the church's central square for evening mass.
The crowd fills the simple wooden pews. Father Andres Hernandez Solano reads the names of the three who perished. He tells me it's hard to find the words to console his parishioners. He says so many have migrated recently. Several told me as many as 50 have left the town in recent months. Father Hernandez says before leaving, young men ask for his blessing. He begs them not to go. But he says Mexicans are hard workers and yearn to get ahead. And the United States takes advantage of the cheap labor, he says. So why not have a more humane immigration policy? Give these boys temporary visas to go work and be able to come back home alive. Outside the boys' home, dozens of women slap out tortillas and serve up bean soup to mourners still coming by. One of the boys' uncle, Mateo Ruiz, says it's hard to convince the town's young men not to migrate. The lure of dollars is strong. Many might not migrate for a while now because of the tragedy, he says, but soon they'll head north again. He actually worked in Chicago for a few years and hears from relatives that there's a lot of work and money to be made in the U.S. now. It's tempting. Makes you think about going again and working for a bit, he says. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, San Marcos, Texquilapan, Veracruz. Big fireworks displays are a staple for many 4th of July celebrations, but a hotter and drier climate in the West is making it too dangerous to set them off. So more places are now switching to a less flammable alternative. Colorado Public Radio's Matt Bloom has more. Connected, not looking good. Okay, what's our pre-flight air? Graham Hill is sitting at a computer overlooking a big grassy field in suburban Denver where he's just finished setting up a small army of drones for takeoff. There's 20 to be exact, each about the size of toy cars with four propeller blades. Looking good, okay, on the map. They're arranged in a five by four grid on the ground, each fixed with a light bulb that's currently flashing a bright blue color in unison. When they finish syncing together, they start beeping. Hill then presses the space bar on his laptop and they take off into the sky in perfect synchronization. Once they're about 50 feet up, their lights change to different colors of the rainbow and float around to form different shapes in midair. So we got like a diamond shape and then a circle shape. We're standing almost right under it. And so sometimes it can look like they're about to hit each other, but they're actually all, all about 10 feet apart at all times. Hills Colorado-based company Hire UAV Pro puts on drone shows all over the world. It's still a niche industry, but growing fast, Hill says. Communities from Colorado to California have hired his team to design patriotic shows to replace their traditional fireworks. They've gotten more requests than they could handle this year from places concerned about fire danger, from Idaho to New Mexico to Texas. As soon as we turned on our website and started advertising and putting a couple videos out there, it's and we probably had like 300, 400 requests for the 4th of July. The shows only last about 15 minutes due to limited battery life. Jeremy Gross, an event coordinator with the town of Vail, says they spent about $100,000 on this year's show, three times more than fireworks would cost. It does take a commitment from the communities that are 
making this change to step up to the plate and spend that money to reduce the risk and provide a new and creative experience. They're worth it, Gross says, because they're less likely to start a catastrophic wildfire and less prone to last-minute cancellations due to high fire danger. Plus, they can make formations that people likely haven't seen before. You can put an eagle in the sky and the eagle actually flaps its wings. You know, the uh, old glory, when you put the flag up, it waves and it, you know, moves and can transition. Some towns, though, are sticking with traditional fireworks, but with additional safety precautions. Estes Park, on the outskirts of Rocky Mountain National Park, is shooting their fireworks over a large lake as a safety measure, says town spokeswoman Kate Rush. I feel lucky that we have a large body of water. That That's a big deal for us. Back at the July 4th show rehearsal, Graham Hill wraps up his test flight. Feels good every time. <laughs> he says he only sees demand going up as communities look for ways to adapt to a drier climate, even if the shows are missing some of the traditional elements of fireworks, like the loud booms and a big, bright finale. We're like the iPhone 1 of drone line shows right now, and I expect in five years we're going to be able to do a near hour-long drone show. They will still have his favorite part, though, the music. He's personally excited to see the drones form the letters USA in red, white, and blue, as Ray Charles' version of America the Beautiful plays in the background. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bloom in Denver. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. The Red Sox are making it work over at Fenway Park. They now have a 4-0 lead over the Tampa Bay Rays, entering the ninth inning. This is thanks to an RBI single by Franchi Cordero that drove in J.D. Martinez. In the forecast, could barely ask for a nicer fourth. Sunshine, fair weather clouds into the evening, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, lows about 64. Tomorrow should bring partly sunny skies, the off chance of a shower, light breezes, up around 86 degrees. 81 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lights. Enjoy an evening lantern experience at Franklin Park Zoo with displays of hundreds of lanterns. Advanced tickets required at franklinparkzoo.org. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Let's be real. It's not a huge surprise that the amount of people trying to buy a home is slowing. We listed uh, five houses last week, and we're seeing that the showings are down and the offers are down. I'm Kimberly Adams, the state of real estate, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Courtney Keeley. At least six people are dead and approximately two dozen have been taken to the hospital after someone opened fire at a 4th of July parade in Highland Park, a suburb of Chicago. Illinois State Senator Julie Morrison was taking part in the parade with her family. I had my grandkids with me. We were decorating the car. We had just pushed off into line. We were about a block from where the shooting happened. Um, we heard gunshots, but I kind of thought it was um, fireworks. Morrison said it was a horrifying scene. Then all of a sudden this wave of people starts running back towards us, screaming, crying, hysterical, carrying their kids. 
Police describe the suspect as a white male, 18 to 20 years old. It's still being treated as an active situation. President Biden has promised federal assistance. Many around the country are continuing to react to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. As NPR's Dave Mistich reports, hundreds gathered in Morgantown, West Virginia today to rally in support of abortion rights. With a rally dubbed Stars, Stripes, and Reproductive Rights, hundreds gathered in front of the Monongalia County Courthouse, chanting and holding signs. The Independence Day holiday wasn't lost on Maddie Collins of nearby Mannington. She says she feels the U.S. has taken a dramatic step backwards. America doesn't deserve a birthday this year. They're getting protests instead. Since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Republican Governor Jim Justice has signaled he's ready to call the GOP-led legislature into a special session to clarify state law if necessary. In 2018, West Virginia voters narrowly ratified a state constitutional amendment that specified no right to an abortion. Dave Mistich, NPR News, Morgantown, West Virginia. U.S. financial markets are closed for the 4th of July trading. U.S. futures are down ahead of trading tomorrow. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston police are trying to identify members of the white supremacist group Patriot Front who marched through downtown Boston Saturday. The group wore masks and allegedly assaulted a black artist and activist, Charles Murrell. As WBR's Walter Wuthman reports, Murrell returned to the spot of the attack this morning to impart a message in song. He had a long chain on. Murrell sang a traditional African-American spiritual near the steps of the Boston Public Library. Murrell's hand was bandaged, and police reports show he was treated at Tufts Medical Center for injuries to his hands and face. He vowed to respond by helping others. I am appalled that even as a healer, I have to get my, my cup poured into in this incident. But in this incident, I will continue to pour into other people's cup as a way to pour into my own cup. Morrell plans to hold a concert later this month in Copley Square. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu also condemned the march by the white supremacists over the weekend, calling the group, quote, cowardly and disgusting. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. And tomorrow at 1230, Mayor Wu will hold a news briefing at Boston Police Headquarters about white supremacist activity in the region. Boston is gearing up for tonight's Boston Pops Fireworks Spectacular. It is the first 4th of July concert on the Esplanade since 2019. Pops conductor Keith Lockhart says he's glad to be back performing at the Hat Shell, and he told WBUR this morning why his favorite part of the show is John Philip Sousa's March, The Stars and Stripes Forever. Because I know it's the end of the concert, and there are, there are so many things, so much pressure in live performance like that, especially when you've got, you know, four or, four or 500,000 people looking on, that I'm just greatly relieved because when I get to Stars and Stripes, I know that I'm on the home stretch. This year's Boston Pops Fireworks Spectacular starts at 8 o'clock. It'll be headlined by the legendary singer Shaka Khan. Fireworks are set for 10.30. The MBTA has put its new orange and red line cars back in service this afternoon just in time for tonight's show. They were taken off the tracks late last month after an out-of-service car experienced a failure in its battery compartment. All repairs were completed over the weekend. State transportation officials recommend taking the T tonight to get to the Esplanade. Subway lines are running on a normal weekday schedule. They'll be free after 9.30 tonight. Several commuter line trains will make their last trip 30 minutes after the fireworks end. They include the Fitchburg, Framingham, Lowell and Providence-Stoughton lines. 
in sports over at Fenway Park. Red Sox are in the ninth inning with the Tampa Bay Rays. 4-0 lead for the Sox right now. And in the forecast, look for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Should be a pleasant night for fireworks and whatever else. Lows about 64. Tomorrow, partly sunny. The off chance of a shower. Light breezes up around 86 degrees. 81 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Crosstrek, an SUV with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and an available 182 horsepower engine. Love, it's what makes Subaru Subaru. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. In Akron, Ohio, more protests are expected into the evening in response to the police shooting of Jalen Walker, despite a new curfew. Police released body cam footage yesterday showing Walker's death during an attempted traffic stop one week ago. Walker was 25 years old, a young black man, unarmed at the time he was shot. And we want to warn you, we will be discussing details of the violence which the video shows. Matt Richmond from IdeaStream Public Media in Cleveland is covering the story and joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. So I know the city also canceled Fourth of July celebrations. How have things been in Akron today? Well, the, the protests are continuing and, and things are getting more tense. Last night, overnight, there was the, um, the state of emergency and the curfew issued. And tonight, that, that curfew in downtown Akron starts at 9. Um, activist organizations like a, lo- a local one called the Freedom Block and members from Black Lives Matters chapter in Cleveland led a march to the mayor's house today and have called for protests throughout the day. Okay, and I know that these protests, they grew after the body cam footage was released yesterday. Can you just give us a little more detail about what that footage shows? Well, so what, what everyone saw in the video first was a, was a short vehicle pursuit. And there's some evidence, there's sound on the video and a flash from, from Walker's car after police started following him that indicates he may have fired a, a gunshot from the car. And uh, Walker later got out of the car and ran. And at that point, he was unarmed. Officers first tried, tried to tase him, and that didn't work. And then seconds later, eight officers fired at Walker dozens of, of times. Uh, police you know, later said that Walker had made a threatening movement. But since his image is on, on the video is blurred for the, on, in, in the public version, that's impossible to see. Um, police say that a gun with the magazine removed was later found in the vehicle he was driving. And, uh, you know, according to Akron Chief of Police Stephen Milet, he had at least 60 wounds in his body from these gunshots based on a preliminary medical examiner report. Wow. Can you just tell us a little more about who Jalen Walker was? Uh, he, he attended Akron Public Schools. He was on the wrestling team. Um, he's been described... Uh, as a kind person, had no criminal record, and drove recently for for a delivery service. Um, sadly, a, about a month before his death, his fiance died in a in a car crash. Hmm. Um, and his family, through through their attorney, you know, said that they don't think that that explains why he chose to flee flee from police that night. Um, and they just say it was something that was totally out of character for him. 
And I know that more protests are expected tonight. I understand that they're demanding more accountability for Walker's death, right? Yeah, they they want um, the eight officers who fired at Walker that, that night to be fired. They want criminal charges to be filed as opposed to waiting for the attorney general's office to complete their investigation. And what they usually do is then present the findings to a grand jury. Um, they want the resignation uh, of the city's deputy mayor for, for public safety. Um, and, you know, eventually there will also be an internal investigation, but they don't want to wait for the city. They don't want they don't want the city to wait for that before firing the officers. And, you know, we're expecting protests tonight and things have yeah. gotten more, more tense and there is a chance it could turn more confrontational. That is Matt Richmond at IdeaStream Public Media in Ohio. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. Despite record high gas prices, people are not exactly flocking to public transit. Riders say they're still nervous about crowds and COVID. They're concerned about safety in general. Saul Gonzalez of member station KQED has a closer look at the sluggish return to mass transit. At a filling station in South LA, regular gas is going for $6.59 a gallon, and Kristen Smith is not happy about what she's spending to partially fill her SUV. I'm only going to put 50 because it'll be like $1.75 for me to fill my truck up. It's ridiculous. <laughs> is public transportation an option for you? <laughs> Absolutely not. And Smith is not the only one here who thinks public transit is an absurd alternative. I asked Jimmy Francisco the same question at the next pump. Have you considered public transportation as an option? Uh, no. That's the reason why I got the car. <laughs> well, this is L.A., but it's also drivers across the country. Matt Dickens, director of research at the American Public Transportation Association, says that historically, high gas prices just create a modest increase in public transportation ridership. Gas prices might go up 20 or 30 percent, and we see maybe a you know, two or three percent change in ridership. Even with high gas prices, mass transit ridership is still only about 60 percent of its pre-pandemic levels. Dickens says public transit agencies are in for a long recovery. In terms of the pandemic, I think a lot of agencies anticipated that it was going to be a sort of several-year trip back to something resembling more normal. Why aren't more people returning to buses and trains? Well, one big reason has been fear of transit crime and violence in cities like New York. The search continues this morning for the man wanted for killing a subway passenger Sunday afternoon. Police say it appears to be a random attack and it has some people in the city fearful of mass transit once again. Kristen Smith, the SUV driver in L.A., acknowledges that she's scared of public transit. For my safety, you know, I definitely want to ride the train now. Because, you know, there's a lot of homeless, a lot of junk, you know, they be on there screaming. Like, we just tried to take the train to go to uh, the Dodger Stadium, and it was crazy. They were fighting on the train, so no, no, no. But transit advocates say safety concerns about public transportation are overblown by media reports. They argue a better focus would be on transit fundamentals, better service, more routes, and cleaner vehicles. Right now we're on the busiest bus line in Los Angeles. It's the 207. We're heading down south, down western. That's Jessica Meany with Investing in Place, an organization that advocates for L.A. bus riders. We're talking about people, at least in Los Angeles, with the least amount of time 
social capital, and access to power. Meany says public transportation planners often spend money on projects that don't benefit the greatest number of passengers. She points to LA's Mass Transit Agency. Like other cities, it got more than a billion dollars in pandemic funds this year, but still cut bus routes. And I would argue our region has really abandoned investing and improving our bus system. We had better bus service in the 90s than we have now. LA County's Transportation Agency said in a statement to NPR that it's working to restore bus services but faces a shortage of hundreds of drivers. This is an issue facing mass transit agencies across the country. Meany points out that the passengers on the bus we're on may not have another transportation option. That's why she says improving public transit is a matter of basic dignity and respect. For NPR News, I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Manhattan is about as urban as a place gets. But each year around this time, one of the city's biggest parks starts to look a little bit like farmland. Jim Zaroli reports on the coming of the goats to Riverside Park. New York City is pretty flat except where it's not. Up around West 120th Street, Riverside Park slopes sharply down to the Hudson River. It's too steep to weed. Invasive plants like multiflora roses and porcelain berry can take over. So a few summers ago, the park turned to an ancient method of garden maintenance. A small herd of goats is brought from upstate in a large trailer and released into the thick, impenetrable brush. Other cities have done this before, but here it's relatively new. It turns out that goats are great weeders. They navigate the steep hillside with ease. They'll be here all summer eating and eating and eating some more. John Harrell directs the Riverside Park Conservancy. If you come back in about six weeks, you'll be able to see right down this slope. It's amazing how much they consume. For people in this part of Manhattan, the goat's arrival each summer has become a much-anticipated and beloved ritual, like the marathon or the St. Patrick's Day parade. Politicians show up and give speeches. And when the goats were brought in recently, a crowd was waiting, phones in hand to take pictures. Delaney Wellington works nearby at Barnard College. My boss let us all like get out of work. She was like, just go see the goats and yeah, come back when you're ready. <laughs> As the goats disappeared into the grass, dogs strained against leashes, sniffing in their direction. Six-year-old Mila Pena poked a long piece of grass through the fence, trying in vain to get the goats' attention. And they go back. So I was trying to distract them to come to me, but they don't go, they just want to eat and they say, like, don't bother me, I'm just eating. Let me eat in peace. Mila's father, Freddie, brought her here, wanting to teach her about animals. Before today, the only goats she remembers seeing were on YouTube. For New Yorkers who don't tend to interact with a lot of farm animals, there's something almost dazzling about the goats. People's faces grow soft looking at them. Tova Getoff can even tell you their names. Uh, Skittles, Mr. G, Eleanor, and 
Cheech. One of the goats is tawny-colored and has huge horns that curl in on themselves. Not pretty, perhaps, but Magda Bogan, a writer, sees a kind of majesty in the way he stands there, poised on a steep patch of hillside. Look at that goat. Look at that face. Look at that beautiful, beautiful, composed, elegant gaze on that goat. Bogan lives nearby and comes here every day to commune with this little bit of nature. It's not clear what the goats think. Ann Kahanek is with the nonprofit rescue service that brought the goats here. Don't worry, she says. I think they love it here because if you close your eyes and you're within this fenced area, you're in a beautiful farm. Except you're in New York City. Except you're in New York City. Kahanek says goats are sociable. They like people. But what these animals mainly appear to be is chill. And as the crowd drifts away, they stay on, heads down, oblivious to the runners and the sirens and the planes overhead, munching their way down the hillside. For NPR News, this is Jim Zaroli in New York. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR is All Things Considered, the latest from Ukraine. Shelling remains intense in Ukraine as Russia takes control of a key eastern city. Also, two-time Tony Award winner Peter Brook has died at the age of 97. He's considered one of the most creative and controversial stage directors of the 20th century. Bob Mondello's remembrance still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood, presenting the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Boston Pops, guest artists, and more in the Berkshire Hills this summer. Details and performance schedule at tanglewood.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. Red Sox are back at home for seven games. This afternoon, they started up their three-game set with the Tampa Bay Rays by blanking them four to nothing. Yankees grace Fenway Park for a four-game series toward the end of the week. In the forecast, a nice night for watching fireworks. Just a few clouds around. Overnight lows about 64. Tomorrow, partly sunny. Maybe a quick afternoon shower. Highs about 86. 81 degrees now in Boston at 449. The pandemic and inflation are turning the dream of homeownership into a nightmare. A lot of tears shed. You have real empathy for these people. Even though people put down money to lock in the price for newly constructed homes, many buyers are realizing they're now impossible to afford. Can anything be done to help? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 and when you ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. Fighting and shelling of civilian areas are intensifying in eastern Ukraine. Russia has been trying to take more Ukrainian territory, and on Sunday, it announced that it had gained control of a key eastern Ukrainian city. NPR's Emily Fang is on the line now from Kriviri in southern Ukraine. Hi, Emily. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so tell us a little more about the city in eastern Ukraine, which Russia now controls. It's called Lysychansk. It's sitting on a quarter of land in Ukraine's east that was blocking Russian advances to more Ukrainian eastern cities in this region called the Donbass in Ukraine. And Russia wants control over all of the Donbass. This week, they made a significant gain by taking over Lysychansk. These gains were not all one way, though. Ukraine did win a handful of villages in the southeast. They won control over an island in the Black Sea. But in general, it's Russia that's made more significant gains in the last few days. There's also been an uptick in Russian shelling in Ukraine, and that's led to these horrible civilian casualties. 
where 20 people died in a shopping mall attack in central Ukraine, another big strike that was a few days later in the port city of Odessa killed 21 people. Yeah. Well, we are now in the fifth month of the war. So can you just put in context what these developments mean at this point? The war has gotten more hot in many ways, right? There's more fighting, artillery is still going back and forth, but the fighting is over these really incremental pieces of territory. It's street by street in cities or in the countryside, one village here, another village there. And that's left this vast swath of largely rural Ukraine in the east and the south that is living under anarchy and constant bombardment. Mm -hmm. I've spent the last few days meeting people who are fleeing from these regions in Kherson in Ukraine South. They're mostly coming from villages on the front lines of this conflict. They describe living the last four months or so with no power, no gas, no food, and missiles landing 20 to 30 times a day. By contrast, in cities they've taken over, Russian soldiers are reportedly russifying the administration by forcing the Russian language on people, using Russian currency instead of the Ukrainian currency. But in villages, which is where the people I've been talking to are from, where the shelling is often the most intense, there is no Russian attempt to govern or to help the people there. And they're largely left on their own or told, if you want to leave, go to Russia. Mm. Well, I understand that Ukraine is preparing a counteroffensive to break past this kind of deadlock. Have you seen any signs of that working? I'm just north of Kherson Oblast, which is one of the staging areas where Ukraine says it wants to mount a counteroffensive. It's trying to retake Kherson, which is the only Ukrainian regional capital the Russians have managed to take over so far. But when I spoke to city officials from a key city just south of here called Zelenodolsk, this morning they told me they had no resources, no artillery, no extra manpower to mount any kind of offensive. They were barely defending themselves with rifles, which are useless against shelling. And so we'll have to see whether these counteroffensives are useful. There's been a lot of shelling. We were just a few kilometers from the front line, and you could hear incoming and outgoing artillery every 15 minutes or so. The mayor there is warning people, do not go to the outskirts of the city. Avoid the shelling. But people ignore him because they're living mm. with this war. They're still right. going on about their daily lives. And it means the war is very much here, and it doesn't look like it's ending soon. Well, please stay safe, Emily. That is NPR's Emily Fang in Kriviri, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Thanks, Elsa. Avant-garde theater director Peter Brook has died at 97. Brook's seven-decade career ranged from star-studded productions of Shakespeare to radical experiments in theater form. NPR's Bob Mondello says a defining moment was the sensation he created in 1964 with a play known as Marat Saad. The 26-word title seemed to say it all, the persecution and assassination of Jean-Paul Marat as performed by the inmates of the Asylum of Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. But all those words didn't prepare audiences for the freak show that Peter Brook had devised, drooling maniacs in rags, rubbing elbows with audience members, shrieking from the stage, and ending the night's political diatribe in a full-scale riot. But take this down. Saturday the 13th of July, 1793, a call to the people of France. Even Marat Saad's curtain call was provocative, as the audience cheered, the cast, still twitching and drooling, squelched a standing ovation each night by applauding back mockingly from the lip of the stage, not dropping character until every audience member had left the theater. When the audience applauded, they were naturally applauding the actors, applauding the show. Peter Brook in an NPR studio in 1992. But as the mad people came and parodied the audience's applause, it was, I think, a valuable moment of deliberate discomfort because suddenly they saw, yes, but it's not only a show, this show is about something. 
Getting at the meaning of performance was Brooks' lifelong quest, explored in everything from grand opera to a sort of primal, almost wordless theater. To illustrate the verbal gymnastics in A Midsummer Night's Dream, he put his cast on trapezes. To explore the fragility of civilization, he turned mostly non-professional children into painted savages in the film Lord of the Flies. Brooke used handheld cameras, unusual in 1963, to give Lord of the Flies a spontaneous, unscripted feel. And he played with form far more aggressively in his theater work, searching for a down-to-earthiness he described in his book The Empty Space and made literal in his nine-hour adaptation of the Mahabharata. He took the colorful, stylized conventions of East Indian theater and anchored them in performance with things hard, practical, and real, fire, earth water. And if you can juggle all the time with those two balls, somewhere in between where they meet, you sometimes can have a flash of what seems like truth. Peter Stephen Paul Brook was born in London to immigrant Russian-Jewish parents. He didn't much care for formal education, but even as a child managed to live and breathe culture. At seven, he reportedly performed his own four-hour version of Hamlet, and by his early 20s, he was directing at Stratford, one of the world's great classical stages. But painted sets and declaiming actors bored him, so he founded the International Center for Theater Research in Paris, dedicated to experimenting with avant-garde notions, taking actors to a mountaintop in Iran, say, to perform a play in an invented language that no one present actually understood. The idea, he said, was to explore how meaning was carried by the musical and rhythmic aspects of the spoken word. That fascination with language was no less present when he dealt with great actors and great words, Paul Schofield, for instance, and Shakespeare. This is not Leah. Does Leah walk thus, speak thus? Where are his eyes? Huh? Waking? It's not so. Brooks' stage leer stripped the text down to bare essentials, and when he adapted his stage version for the screen, he applied all the avant-garde tricks available to filmmakers in 1971. The result was no longer Shakespeare's Lear, it was Peter Brook's Lear, a new conception that illuminated a celebrated text while deconstructing it. What should the audience take away? Brook let his work speak for itself, and when asked what he wanted audiences to take from his life and work, he said much the same thing. The only thing that truly concerns me is what happens now in the moment, whenever that moment is taking place. The rest is up to others in their present. It's no longer my problem. Director Peter Brook. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melissa Fetter a member of the NPR Foundation Board of Trustees, working to help provide the highest quality public service journalism to communities across the USA. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. 
viking.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Sunny, breezy, darn nice for Independence Day. A bit of a breeze to make parading or watching parades more comfy. Tonight, partly cloudy skies, about 64. Tomorrow, partly sunny, a little bit warmer, up around 86. Slight chance of showers Tuesday and Wednesday. For Wednesday, for the most part, it should be sunny and cooler, hovering around 81 degrees. That's where it is right now in the Boston area. Red Sox have started up their Fenway homestand right Today, they kept the Tampa Bay Rays scoreless for a 4 to nothing victory. The teams have games tomorrow and Wednesday nights, and the Yankees come to town. 81 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In Highland Park outside Chicago, six people are dead, 31 injured in a shooting at a 4th of July parade. A high-powered rifle has been found. The suspect has not. Coming up, Illinois Representative Brad Schneider talks about the shooting in the district he represents. It's Monday, July 4th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, high demand for housing has caused rental rates to rocket. And for the most vulnerable tenants, an eviction could bring permanent damage. So maybe before you get an eviction in one city, you move to another city and, and the landlord doesn't know about your record. That's just not the case anymore. Also, the story of Ed Dwight. In 1961, he became the first black astronaut trainee in the U.S. He was the target of racism, even promulgated by the instructors. Don't drink with him. Don't invite them to your parties. The whole idea was to show these white students that we got to discourage him. It's 5.01. I'm from NPR News in Washington. I'm Jack Spear. A massive manhunt is now underway in Highland Park, Illinois, outside Chicago, after a gunman opened fire this morning at a 4th of July parade killing at least six people and injuring two dozen more. The shooter fled after reportedly firing a high-powered rifle from a rooftop. NPR's Brian Mann reports. The shooting began just after 10 a.m. as the Highland Park Independence Day parade was getting underway. It's not yet clear what prompted the shooting, but the city's mayor, Nancy Rodering, described the attack as an act of terrorism. On a day that we came together to celebrate community and freedom, we're instead mourning the loss, the tragic loss of life and struggling with the terror that was brought upon us. Police described the suspect as a white male age 18 to 20 with long dark hair. They've urged local residents to shelter in place whenever possible until he's apprehended. Fourth of July celebrations this evening in Highland Park and some nearby communities have been canceled. Brian Mann, NPR News. The scene of today's mass shooting in Highland Park is eerily celebratory and frightening at the same time. Video shows a flag festooned street with abandoned lawn chairs and other parade paraphernalia left in place after parade goers fled in terror. WBEZ Sarah Karp is there. I'm a few blocks from downtown Highland Park where the shooting took place. Police from multiple towns and the state police are out here and being deployed. I just talked to Father Scott Vanderhall and his daughter Zoe Pavlicek, who are watching the parade when the shooting broke out. They turned around and saw two people on the ground who they believe were deceased. They wound up hiding in the basement of a store for a long time with two other injured people. The 29-year-old Pavlicek is angry. She said people are always talking about the right to have a gun, but that led to people being slaughtered on Independence Day. 
President Biden has expressed shock over the event and has promised federal help. The Ukrainian flag is again flying over Snake Island off the coast of Odessa after the Russians were ousted last week. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports it's an act of defiance in the midst of the Russian onslaught. The news is not good from the east of the country where Russian forces took control of the last major city in the Luhansk region Sunday. But 30-year-old business manager Alexander Pilipenko, who fled Donetsk, says no one wants to live under Russia and Ukrainians will oust their occupiers. If you check the last news, we have a lot of uh, partisan moving in uh, Kherson, in Melitopol, and even in Mariupol. And if the armed forces continue to receive weapons from the West, he says... Trust me, in one year you will see Donetsk, Lugansk under Ukraine. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Vinitsia, Ukraine. U.S. financial markets are closed for the 4th of July holiday, though there was trading overseas today. Stocks gained ground in London, Paris, Frankfurt, and Tokyo, while markets fell in Hong Kong. U.S. futures are also down ahead of trading, which is set to resume tomorrow. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. If you plan to attend tonight's concert and fireworks show on the Esplanade, expect a strong police presence. Large crowds are anticipated for the first Boston Pops July 4th concert at the Hat Shell since the start of the pandemic. State Police Colonel Christopher Mason says there will be checkpoints and periodic security sweeps. So we'll be checking catch basins, uh, drainage areas, uh, garbage cans. Uh, we'll be s- sweeping for unattended uh, baggage, uh, backpacks, luggage, you know, those types of things, anything suspicious. Mason says there will also be officers in boats and helicopters. The FBI says there are no known credible threats to tonight's events. This reminder, Storrow Drive in Boston and Memorial Drive in Cambridge are now closed to traffic in the vicinity of tonight's program at the Esplanade. Storrow is closed from Leverett Circle to University Ave at Boston University. Memorial Drive is closed to traffic from the Longfellow Bridge to the BU Bridge. That's in both directions. As for getting to the concert and fireworks show, state officials recommend taking the T. Subway lines are running on a normal weekday schedule, and riding the T will be free after 9.30. And several commuter line trains will delay their final trip of the night until 30 minutes after the fireworks end. July 4th fireworks can be notoriously tough on pets. If you find yourself with an anxious dog or cat tonight, veterinarian Emma Rose Joffe of the Veterinary Emergency Group in Newton says just saying staying calm can be a big step to help your four-legged friend. If you freak out, your pet will freak out. If you can keep yourself kind of locked in a back area of your house, be it the basement or a bathroom, and just kind of sit with your pet, but don't give it more attention than you normally would um, and project a kind of an aura of calm around your pet. Joffe says it's possible to desensitize your animal to sound. She says try playing a loud recording of fireworks ahead of time and giving your pet a treat at the same time. Red Sox had a treat over at Fenway Park. They blanked the Tampa Bay Rays 4-0 today for the first of a three-game set. And in the forecast, a nice night for watching fireworks or whatever tonight. A few clouds around overnight, lows about 64. Then for tomorrow, partly sunny, maybe a quick afternoon shower. Highs about 86 degrees. 81 degrees now in Boston at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a privacy company committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer private search and tracker blocking with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The rental market is wild right now. It's the same story in so many places, not just New York or L.A., 
Cincinnati. Some people saw their rent rise an extra $300. Scottsdale. Whose rent is going up more than 800 bucks. Chapel Hill. A single mother in Chapel Hill says rent is going up $400 a month. According to Redfin, listed rents on available properties are up 15% nationally over a year ago. In some cities, they're up 30% or more. That's well over the rate of inflation. Given all that, it might seem cheaper to buy a place, except... I can't qualify for as much of a mortgage as I could have, and it's been really discouraging. Kim Drotar is a public school teacher, and she told NPR she'd been looking to move out of her St. Louis rental apartment and buy a place, somewhere her fifth grade daughter could have more space. I just want some place where she can ride her bike and make friends with the neighbors and play with the kids and they can come over. But lately, she can't find a home in her price range, and it's only getting more expensive to buy one. For years, there hasn't been enough new construction in the U.S., especially starter homes and small apartments. And now interest rates are going up and the Fed is hiking them further to fight inflation. The hope was that that would then lower the prices of houses, but it hasn't. And it's pricing me out of the market fully. More and more people are finding themselves in that situation. Mortgage applications are down 20% from a year ago. But that puts even more pressure on the rental market as buyers stay renters and renters find new and intense competition for existing apartments. Now, NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports, some people are finding themselves in rental bidding wars. When Sarah DaCosta had to find a new apartment in Chicago with her husband, baby, and dog, the whole process seemed weird. She'd never heard of an open house for a rental. And literally, like, people couldn't even fit in the house, and we got there right when it started. Then the listing agent said, submit your best and final. DaCosta's realtor said that meant above asking. They'd already lost out once, so... On this place that was actually smaller than the place we were living in before and that was more expensive, we offered $150 more a month in rent. And we still didn't get it. That happened again and again. And it's not only in big cities. In Port Orange, Florida, Brandon Sweetis is a 40-year-old single dad who was forced to move this year. First, his landlord said she wanted to sell the place. But when he started looking around... I found the house that I was living in posted for rent for $2,000. And I was paying 1400 His rent was nearly half his take-home pay. Still, Sweetis applied for another place that was 1750 and was told he had a lock on it. But the next day, the agent said, sorry, someone else had just offered $200 more. And the other people hadn't even seen the home. They just found it online and were willing to say, hey, we'll pay more and we'll pay now. Sweetis ended up finding a place at his same rent, but it's much smaller. There's no yard or garage, and it's farther from his kid's school. He says he always hoped to eventually buy a house, a place where his children could always gather on holidays, bring the grandkids. The stuff that you think is normal, that you see in movies growing up. But now he feels that will never happen for him. I've lived in the same area for the last 20 years. I know what these houses were renting for and what they were selling for. But, you know, what's occurred over the last two years, it's like just boom, destruction. A lot of factors led to this record surge in rental demand. Jessica Louts of the National Association of Realtors says for more than a decade, the U.S. has not built enough new homes. Now, supply chain delays are slowing construction. Plus, those priced out of mortgages are staying put. 
And on top of all this, millennials hitting their late 20s are eager to move out on their own. And so as we see this demand really pushed up against this huge wave of young adults starting household formation, there's no quick solution to this. So it's a good time to be a landlord. Bashir Nuruddin and his wife own nine rental units in Chicago, and one came open recently. I had so many phone calls that I just stopped answering calls. Over 100 people between emails and phone calls contacted me about that apartment. He's had bidding wars, but he says they make him feel smarmy, so he no longer allows them. He actually prides himself on offering just under market rent. But the last two years have been rough. One tenant stopped paying for most of a year and caused major damage to the apartment, yet he couldn't evict her under the pandemic moratorium. And all that work from home was hard on refrigerators, washers, AC. I actually really can't remember how many appliances we replaced in the last year. So when a $1,200 a month three-bedroom came open, he listed it for $1,785. In that apartment, I raised the rent by this drastic amount. Not because that's what I would typically do, but because I have to recoup all these losses that I've had over the last year. The tight market and skyrocketing rents make it even tougher for those who've long struggled to find affordable housing. Lindsay Siegel is with Atlanta Legal Aid Society. Just the act of applying for apartments is incredibly unaffordable for low-income tenants because once you pay that application fee once or twice or three times, you don't have any money left to pay that first month's rent or the security deposit, and then you're stuck. Dana Johnson just got terrible news. The 54-year-old lives northeast of Atlanta and faces eviction after losing her job as a property leasing agent last year. She can pay what's due with emergency rental aid, and she hoped to stay put so she doesn't face even higher rent, but the landlord decided she needs to move out. I'm just going to have to look for as many jobs as I can get because I have to pay rent that is astronomical right now, and it doesn't compensate with the salaries that are available. She's already started her own company to sell doggy apparel, but if it doesn't all work out, she'll probably look for someone else who's also struggling and needs a roommate. Jennifer Levin, NPR News. Let's talk more about one thing you just heard there, emergency rental aid. During the pandemic, the federal government offered it in the billions, but now that money is almost all gone. And other pandemic protections, like eviction moratoriums, are mostly a thing of the past, too. So what does all this mean for people vulnerable to eviction in a red-hot rental market? The pandemic years were actually some of the only two years in recent history where renters at the bottom of the market had the kinds of protections that they need to enjoy the housing security that renters in the rest of the United States have taken for granted for decades. That's Carl Gershenson of the Princeton Eviction Lab. He says there are changes in the ways evictions can follow someone looking for a new place to live. One trend, you know, over the last two decades is records from housing courts have been made electronic. It makes it so much easier for landlords to consult them, especially for a landlord to consult records from, uh, you know, completely other different parts of the country. So maybe before you get an eviction in one city, you move to another city and, and the landlord doesn't know about your record. That's just not the case anymore. What's made that even easier is the number of companies that have started up that provide automated tenant screening services. And these are extremely blunt tools where a landlord just enters a name and the software just sort of gives a thumbs up, thumbs down, should you rent to this person. Wow. 
We've been hearing for a long time that the U.S. needs more affordable housing, but that is a long-term solution. Are there short-term ideas that can help solve this crisis? Yes, there are so many of them. You know, I, I'm not. I'm not even picky ab- about which one. I mean, well, that's encouraging that there's a lot of them. Yeah, at the bottom of it, it's about giving money to extremely low-income households. During the pandemic, we had extended unemployment insurance. Uh, we had child tax credits. We had emergency rental assistance. You can imagine universal basic income. You could put more money into housing choice vouchers. You know, just when it comes down to it, households that earn something like $25,000 a year or less, that's just not enough to rent a house or buy a house uh, in, in, in contemporary markets. These families need income support. So there are a lot of solutions that involve helping people with money. Are there process-based solutions that change the way evictions work that might help solve this problem? Yes. I mean, we, we see very clearly that the more rights that you give to tenants, uh, the more likely they are to stay in their homes and claiming those rights in court. So in, in Philadelphia, there is a program that makes it mandatory that before a landlord files for eviction against a tenant, th- they have to go through a mediation process. So there's not going to be a mark on the tenant's record that's going to make it harder for them to find housing in the long term. Instead, you sit down and you see if there's some sort of solution that the tenant and the landlord can come to that does not involve getting the courts involved. In New York City, New York was, I believe, the first city to establish a right to counsel for tenants in housing court. Everyone knows that if you are uh, in, in a criminal court, you have a right to counsel. But in civil courts like housing, there's no such right. And something like 90% of landlords show up with lawyers and fewer than 10% of tenants show up with lawyers. When one side has lawyers and the other doesn't, the side with lawyers almost always wins. So by providing tenants with counsel in civil courts, uh, we see dramatically better outcomes for these tenants. Is the U.S. an outlier in this respect? Do other countries have models that are more successful? We are absolutely an outlier. If you look at our peer nations, uh, we evict at rates that are two to three times higher than uh, just about every country in Europe. Really, the only country that comes close to us is Canada, uh, but we're, we're still significantly higher than Canada. So what do all those other countries do differently from us? A lot of them provide much more generous housing support, whether that be in terms of a check that you write to tenants to help them cover the rent, or just in the direct provision of public housing or social housing. We, we, we have a uniquely uh, market-based housing regime in the United States. Um, in fact, you know, the last two years, this, the, the pandemic era was really the only time we have seen a substantial decrease in the number of evictions. So we know it can be done, but we also know that it took sort of unprecedented federal action to actually cut into uh, the eviction rate in the United States. Carl Gershenson is project director of the Eviction Lab at Princeton University. Thanks for talking with us. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR is All Things Considered, the congressman whose district includes Highland Park, Illinois, site of the deadly shooting at a 4th of July parade this morning. That story is still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gloucester Stage, presenting Between the Sheets, a new play about Edith Wharton's love affair. Between the Sheets, July 1st to 24th, tickets at gloucesterstage.com. And the ICA, with a place for me celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant figurative paintings, icaboston.org. Wall Street's closed for the 4th of July. In other news, the state has its first Miss Massachusetts, who's a Muslim, 
Katrina Kincaid was crowned the winner of the competition over the weekend. The Bostonian won $15,000 in scholarship awards. Her Twitter account says she has cut her student loan debt by more than half. She'll now go on to compete for the Miss America title. Kincaid works as a TV reporter in Boston. The forecast is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital nine years in a row. BostonChildrens.org slash answers. And Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at LizLinder.com. This afternoon at Fenway Park, Red Sox fans gave pitcher Cutter Crawford a standing ovation as he struck out eight in five and a third scoreless innings, leading the Sox to a 4 nothing win over Tampa Bay. Sunny, breezy, pretty nice for this Independence Day. A bit of a breeze to make parades or watching parades or fireworks comfortable tonight. Partly cloudy skies, 64 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny, a little warmer, up around 86 degrees. 81 degrees now in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Night Pain, a nighttime pain reliever designed to help people fall asleep fast. It contains diphenhydramine and acetaminophen. More at ZZZQuil.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. There has been yet another mass shooting. This one took place earlier today in the Chicago suburb of Highland Park. People were lining the streets to watch the local 4th of July parade when a gunman opened fire. At least six are dead and dozens more are injured. A massive manhunt is now underway to find the unidentified shooter. In a statement, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker responded to the attack saying, quote, there are no words for the kind of monster who lies in wait and fires into a crowd of families with children celebrating a holiday with their community. One of the people planning to march in this morning's parade was Illinois Congressman Brad Schneider. He lives in Highland Park, and he joins us now. Welcome, Congressman, and I'm very, very sorry for what has happened. Thank you for having me. So I understand that you and members of your staff were gathering at the front of the parade at the time. Can you just describe what happened as far as you could see and what additional details you've learned since from officials? Thank you. So, yeah, we were um, at the very beginning. Uh, this is actually one of five parades that I and my team do on the 4th of July. Um, and the, the team was gathered at the very beginning. Not We haven't, hadn't started on the parade route yet. The parade had started maybe 10 minutes earlier when the shots rang out and people immediately dispersed and, uh, and sought safety. Um, uh, we checked to make sure everyone uh, was accounted for on, on the team and and then started working and seeing what we could do to help with our, our community. I reached out to the mayor and, and other uh, people to see what, what was going on. But this is devastating. And it's, it's not just the shooters, as Mayor, our Governor Pritzker said, this is a, a monster, a murderer, who uh, what is a celebratory day every year, thousands gather on a parade route to uh, honor and, and uh, celebrate our, our nation's birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he shattered that with, uh, I don't know how many rounds, killing six people and, and, and severely wounding, grievously wounding 24 others. And what is the atmosphere tonight 
like in Highland Park? I understand you're you're sheltering somewhere because the shooter is yeah. at large. Yeah. No, I, 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 my wife and I are, are at home as our neighbors. Uh, we, we've talked to uh, several of them. Um, I think you know at the beginning this morning, and this happened around you know before ten thirty. Uh, the feeling was disbelief. How could this happen? Um, and not understanding the full scale. Uh, as the day has progressed, and understanding that this was a high-powered assault weapon, uh, that six people have, have been murdered, uh, others are in, are in uh, critical condition, uh, the community is in yeah. grief, uh, grief and shock, and uh, it's going to be a long time as we work to process this. Now, you tweeted that you are committed to doing everything you can to make children, your towns, your nation safer. Can you give us an idea of what you can do as a member of Congress working alongside a very divided Senate right now? Yeah, the challenge is the Senate. I, I, I know we can do. I came to Congress and uh, first elected in, in 2012. Uh, we were going through orientation was when the Sandy Hook shooting happened. Uh, I thought after that we were going to be able to take positive steps to try to reduce gun violence uh, in our nation. Uh, in 2019 and again in 2021, the House passed the uh, universal background checks legislation. Uh, that would make sure that uh, uh, people who shouldn't have a gun can't get one. I think we just have to continue to show resolve and find people who will work with us to make our communities safer, our kids safer. That was Democratic Congressman Brad Schneider of Highland Park, Illinois, speaking to us about today's mass shooting at a Fourth of July parade. Thank you very much for your time, Congressman. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Water has many meanings to Native American tribal nations. It is both sacred and practical. Over the past decades, much of indigenous activism has focused on preserving access to water for their communities. NPR's Jennifer Venasco visited an exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York that examines how that activism is reflected through art. First, I should say Nari Hamashak. I am Purapacha, Purapacha descent. Patricia Mariquin Norby is indigenous. Her family is from a pueblo in Mexico, and she's leading a small tour of the exhibit Water Memories. As you go through the exhibition, you'll realize that what we're doing is creating a current, a stream of stories and memories. Norby is the Met Museum's first ever curator of Native American art, and the 40 pieces she's chosen for the show range from the historical to the contemporary. There's a 1989 painting here of a dark angel on the beach and toy canoes made for children to play with two centuries ago. The exhibit explores water's many uses for fishing, for travel, for ritual, to soften the reeds that make lidded baskets, but also to flood native land by building dams or to mark a country's boundaries, like the Rio Grande does between Texas and Mexico. This is a new kind of exhibit for the Met. Norby is encouraging us to think about the politics of water, not just admire beautiful objects. For example, she includes a video shot at the Standing Rock Reservation. (laughs) 
The video from Chinupa Hanska Luger is shot from above, and while this music plays, we can see a line of people holding mirrored water protector shields above their heads and gliding across the snow to create a spiral. It represents a giant water snake. The snake is captivating, but that's not really why the video is here. Sylvia Yant, the curator in charge of the Met's American Wing, says this about Norby. It's an exhibition that really reveals her environmental approach to indigenous art. Just a few years ago, Native American art at the Met had been lumped together with art from Africa, Southeast Asia, South America. But the museum received a substantial new gift in 2017 and moved its newly enhanced Native American collection where they say it really belongs, the American Wing. Yant says bringing all these new objects into the museum raises questions. What does it mean to bring an important collection of largely historical Native arts into a largely Euro-American collection? And what are the issues that are raised? What are the conversations we really need to address? In other words, looking at objects like these in new ways can actually transform how art is seen in the rest of the museum. But also, some of the objects are just a joy to look at. There's a contemporary art piece, and it's a canoe frame filled with feathers and carefully crafted glass whale oil lamps from the 1800s. One of Norby's favorite works is what looks like a pile of shiny, hollow whale teeth on a weathered dock. They glow. They're beautiful. They're pearlescent. You want to almost want to reach out and touch them because of their, their um, smooth texture, but we highly recommend that people do not do that here <laughs> at the museum. But what she would like people to do is come away with an intimate connection to the significance of water. Jennifer Vanasco, NPR News, New York. The pandemic brought some of us virtual work from home. Some of us lost our jobs, some decided to work less or not at all. And now our expectations for work itself have changed. Stories of the great reinvention tomorrow on Morning Edition. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, one man's story shows the underlying racial tensions and insularity in the early days of the U.S. space program. That story is just ahead. A beautiful July 4th, not a bad 5th and 6th, too. Look for a few clouds around tonight, a nice night for fireworks watching. Overnight lows should be about 64. Tomorrow, partly sunny skies, inching up to about 86 tomorrow, some gusty breezes. And then for Wednesday, bright sunshine, dipping back to just about 81 degrees, which is where it is right now in the Boston area, 81 degrees at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at SunbugSolar.com. This summer, Circle Round, WBUR's storytelling podcast for the young and young at heart, is coming to a page and stage near you. Join me, Rebecca Shear, on Saturday at WBUR City Space in Boston for a party celebrating two new Circle Round picture books. Plus, we're keeping the party going all summer long with live storytelling events at bookstores and museums across New England. Find tickets and more information at WBUR.org slash Circle Round. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Courtney Keeley. 
Fourth of July celebrations are now canceled in Highland Park, Illinois, and other Chicago area suburbs after a shooter opened fire at an Independence Day parade, killing at least six people. About two dozen others were transported to local hospitals. Highland Park Police Commissioner Chris O'Neill says it's still an active situation. The parade route in downtown Highland Park and the central business districts remain an active crime scene. Therefore, we highly recommend that individuals living in this area to continue to shelter in place. Police describe the suspect as a white male between 18 to 20 years old. Lake County Deputy Chief Christopher Cavelli spoke about the retrieved gun. The gun is uh, certainly being uh, heavily investigated by the ATF, our federal partners, and we are working on that aspect. The White House has released a statement from President Biden saying members of the community should follow guidance from leadership on the ground, and he will be monitoring closely. The Biden administration also says it's adding millions of additional doses of the monkeypox vaccine to its emergency stockpile. As NPR's Ping Huang reports, the move could help fight recent outbreaks. The Genius vaccine prevents smallpox and monkeypox, and in the midst of a U.S. monkeypox outbreak, the government is ordering an additional 2.5 million doses for the strategic national stockpile. The doses should start arriving over the next couple of months. They're made by Bavarian Nordic, a Danish company with a branch in North Carolina. The doses come from vaccine that was already made for the government and will be delivered in a liquid frozen formulation for quick use. The company has plans to freeze-dry additional vaccine so it can be stored for longer. The news comes days after the White House announced that it's offering the vaccine to people who are presumably exposed. If the vaccine is given within a week or two, it can help prevent the disease or at least lessen the symptoms. Ping Huang, NPR News. This is live NPR News Live from Washington. I'm Courtney Keeley. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of Massachusetts' congressional delegation are reacting to today's deadly shootings in the Chicago suburb Highland Park. Senator Ed Markey calls it a tragedy, tweeting, As families come to celebrate America, they're gunned down in the scourge of gun violence plaguing it. He adds that the bipartisan gun law that Congress passed last month was a first step, but Congress must do more to stop the deadly epidemic. And Congresswoman Catherine Clark tweeted that the fact that no place in the USA is safe from gun terror means no place is truly free. State police continue to prepare for security for tonight's Boston Pops concert and fireworks. This is the first time the event is being held at the Hatch Shell since the pandemic began. State Police Colonel Christopher Mason says there will be a strong trooper presence and security checkpoints. Visitors to the venue can still expect to be uh, go, going through a security process, much like you would go through the airport. You'll be wanted. Uh, there'll be a baggage check that's done by a private vendor. Mason says there'll be fewer food vendors on site this year. Visitors are being asked to bring food and snacks along, but no coolers with wheels. They're prohibited. Sam Schinker came in from Ohio for tonight's concert and fireworks. They drove 13 hours straight to get here. The passion, the magic of being here and hearing the pops and just the spectacular energy, both from the orchestra, from Maestro Keith Lockhart, from the crowd, is indescribable. It's electric. It's unlike anything else. Tonight's concert starts at 8. The fireworks display is set to start at 1030. Several road closures are now in effect around the Esplanade. Memorial Drive in Cambridge is closed in both directions between the Longfellow and BU bridges. Starro Drive is also closed to traffic in both directions between Leverett Circle and University Ave at Boston University. Officials recommend you take the T if you're headed to the Esplanade. And the state attorney general's office is releasing guidance for people who are considering 
considering installing solar panels on their homes. Elizabeth Mahoney is the senior policy advisor for energy with the AG's office. She says residents should treat solar installation as they would any other major purchase and always ask for a consumer disclosure form. If you ask for two or three quotes, you should be getting that same form and you can compare information from one point to the next without having to fiddle around with different contracts. You've got the same form to compare right next to one another. Mahoney says there are different options like leasing solar panels or buying them outright. Another option, she says, is community solar that's buying a share of power from a solar farm. Red Sox have taken game one of their three-game series with the Tampa Bay Rays at Fenway. This afternoon, they blanked the Rays 4-0. Cutter Crawford took them out in the third inning. He went five and a third scoreless innings, gave up just two hits, one walk, and struck out eight. In the forecast, a nice night tonight. Just a few clouds around. Overnight lows about 64. For tomorrow, partly sunny skies, maybe a quick afternoon shower. Highs around 86 degrees, cooling to about 81 degrees on Wednesday with mostly sunny skies. 81 degrees now in the Boston area at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rock Auto an online auto parts store shipping parts directly to customers worldwide. Everything from complex sensors to new carpet. More at rockauto.com. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. In 1961, the U.S. was in a tense space race with the Soviet Union, and the U.S. was losing that race. So President Kennedy pledged to do something the Soviets had not done. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. Most of the country was excited by Kennedy's vision, but many black Americans resented the space race because it cost money that might have gone to help black communities. Then an idea came to the Kennedy administration, which would bridge the gap between the civil rights movement and the space race. Radio Diaries brings us the story of the almost astronaut. My name is Ed Dwight. While I was in the Air Force, I was the only black officer pilot just about every base I was stationed. I was a little bitty guy, five foot four inches tall, but every couple of months I was getting an award for doing something. Uh, and I was as happy as, as could be. I couldn't have a better life. And on November the 4th, 1961, I got this letter asking me if I would consider going to experimental test pilot school for the astronaut training program. I mean, my mind went berserk. I took this letter to my commanders, say, what do you think? And they said, forget it. This whole thing is political. If you think for a minute that they're going to let you succeed at being some Negro astronaut guy, it ain't going to happen. I almost threw the letter away. But my mother got involved. (laughs) And she was telling me some things about how the race could be uplifted by example and inspiration. I didn't look at myself as a savior of my race. But my mother was never wrong, so I, I just went for it. 
And in four days, I was sent down to Edwards Air Force Base to go into this training program. This is the 65-square-mile heart of Edwards Air Force Base. The area surrounding this prime facility permits the testing of new manned and unmanned aircraft and missiles without endangering the civilian populace. Edwards is in the middle of the Mojave Desert. It's arid, very dry, and it's hard, flat desert. I'm Woodson Fountain, and I was out at Edwards Air Force Base in the early 60s as an engineer. I mean, these are the top-notch fighter pilots that were wanting to become astronauts. I'm Lorenz Grant. I'm the director of the documentary Black in Space, Breaking the Color Barrier. The head of the training course is the inimitable icon Chuck Yeager. You know, uh, we're turning out an entirely different breed of pilot here at the school. Chuck Yeager was the first pilot to fly faster than the speed of sound. He had the swagger, he had the personality, and his word held sway on who to select or not select to be an astronaut. These guys will be working on programs all the way from the surface of the Earth to space. They'll probably be flying vehicles that are unheard of today. My name is Charles Bolden. In 2009, I became the first appointed black administrator of NASA. This project candidate is preparing for stress. We didn't know what it was going to be like to go to space, and so medical people came up with tests, sometimes wild tests. The weight of eight gravities will thrust upon him as he rides the human centrifuge. In the centrifuge training, you get all the rumbling and the noise and the bumping of going on a full-tilt space mission. Things like, we call it the vomit comet, going into a, an airplane that pulls up and then pushes over to create about 20 seconds worth of weightlessness destined to make almost anybody sick. Those are the kinds of things that they did to your body to see how far they could stretch it before it kind of broke. I had never faced competition like that. And so to be selected out of this larger class, I gotta be smarter, I gotta be more quick, but I have a lot of confidence in my ability to do things. Against all odds, I was succeeding in the training program. These men are astronauts, healthy volunteers who are being trained for the first U.S. space flight. Historically, the first classes of astronauts were white male astronauts. But then Jet Magazine comes out April 18, 1963. The headline is Report on First Negro Astronaut Trainee. And there, in all of his heroic glamour, is Captain Ed Dwight entering everyone's home on the cover of Jet Magazine. And that just sets off such a press whirlwind. I was the savior of the black race all of a sudden. I would leave the base and make speeches. Uh, little kids are six years old, and I would talk about my childhood. Keith asked Captain Dwight, how does one become an astronaut? Well, Keith, one must study hard in order to get anywhere in life. And if you study hard, Keith, you too can become an astronaut. I'm kind of an ambassador for the space program. I'm an ambassador for the, for the black community. And I said, this is really, really cool. In the meantime, the instructors, the classmates, everybody at Edwards Air Force Base, we're livid. 
We're working our butts off so many days a week, and this clown is going and giving speeches. Chuck Yeager hated the whole idea of me making a speech to anybody. You know, Ed White was just seen as, quote-unquote, Kennedy's boy. Possibly Chuck Yeager is thinking, well, why, who is this dude? He's just a pilot. Why is he getting all of this attention? I didn't learn about this till later. Colonel Yeager called the students in, and these are my fellow students, and said, you have to isolate him. Don't drink with him. Don't invite him to your parties. The whole idea was to show these white students that we got to discourage him. So Ed would say these things to me that he was going through, like that Colonel Yeager would call Ed into his office and say, are you ready to quit yet? His favorite thing was he had this yellow line paper that we always use, and he had a bunch of names on it written, and he would unfold that and lay it out. And he says, uh, Captain Dwight, I got 150 white pilots here. All 150 of them are better than you could possibly be. This is a excerpt from Chuck Yeager's autobiography. It came out in July 1985. Ed Dwight was an average pilot with an average academic background. He wasn't a bad pilot, but he wasn't exceptionally talented either. Flying with a good bunch in a squadron, he would probably get by but he just couldn't compete in the space course against the best of the crop of experienced military test pilots. It just seems like he wanted to put something down on record from his point of view. Like, oh, he was average, he wasn't that great. But I'm not racist because good pilots are just good pilots, whether you're white or black. You all know why you're here today and why we're here. Uh, we'd like to introduce the New group of 14 astronauts. October 18, 1963. This is the day that we were graduating. This is the end of training. They had the big press conference to announce this astronaut class. The whole class was in this room, and every one of those guys wanted a place on that astronaut list. And all the men come out onto this dais. And the world was waiting with anticipation on this announcement. Okay, with that, I'll let each individual introduce himself from right to left. I'm Captain Bill Anders, Kirtland Air Force Base, New Mexico. Captain Charles A. Bassett from Dayton, Ohio. Lieutenant Alan Bean, Jacksonville, Florida, hometown Fort Worth, Texas. In spite of the fact that there was pressure from the President of the United States to select a black astronaut, when the list came out, all white. No Ed Dwight. Okay, we are open to questioning at this time. Clearly, the press was expecting Ed Dwight to be there, but he wasn't selected. And they just played it off like, nope. Was there a Negro boy in the last 30 or so that you brought here for consideration? Uh, no, there was not. Okay, I guess we're through, Paul. The deafening silence, to me, speaks volumes. NASA doesn't really have to explain who they select to be astronauts. The assumption on my part as a black man is that he did not make it because of race. That's not a statement of fact. That is a statement of gut feel. You know, we hadn't even integrated schools yet. And you're talking about sending a black guy to the moon. Give me a break. 
I don't want him in my school. So why should I put him in my spacecraft? I wasn't scared. I wasn't upset. I wasn't anything. I was kind of numb. I had planned on being in this service for 30 years. I, I was going to be a general in this man's Air Force. And I was on the way to that dream had I not done that astronaut thing. I was on the way. After this press conference, a year later, he would resign. I just wiped this astronaut thing off. I erased that board. I said, I resigned from the Air Force. And I drove off that base and uh, I pointed my car north to Denver. And I, I couldn't look back. For all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. Ed Dwight's class would go on, some of them, to become household names, you know, including two who went to the moon, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins, and also Bill Anders, who famously, from space, read from the book of Genesis. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise. Think of what it would have meant for a black kid in a segregated school to see somebody that looked like him in Apollo 8 as they circle the moon. That could have been Ed Dwight. Ed Dwight is 88 now and has since taken up a new career in sculpting. He specializes in lesser-known black historical figures, sort of like himself. It took 20 years after Ed Dwight for America to send the first black man to space. His name is Guy Bluford. This story was produced by Micah Hazel and edited by Deborah George, Ben Shapiro, and Joe Richmond of Radio Diaries. You can hear more about Ed Dwight on the Radio Diaries podcast. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, we ask listeners who emigrated to the United States what the holiday today means to them. That story is still ahead. Red Sox have taken game one of their three-game series with the Tampa Bay Rays at Fenway Park. Earlier this afternoon, they blanked the Rays four to nothing. Cutter Crawford took the mound in the third inning. He went five and a third scoreless innings, gave up just two hits and one walk, and struck out five. He got a standing ovation at Fenway Park. Aside from the parades and fireworks, there's something cosmic going on tonight. The Earth is as far away from the sun as it'll be all year. Astronomers call that Athlon, Athlion, and it is only, only happening in north, the northern hemisphere. According to Space.com, it's tough to imagine the Earth being at its farthest point from the sun when it's hot outside, but it's the Earth's tilt on its axis that gives us seasons and temperature changes. It's not our distance from the sun. If you're wondering just how close we are to the sun today, it's about 94.5 million miles. The average distance is a mere 93 million. This is 90.9 WBUR, 81 degrees at 549. This is not normal. How could this be happening in America? They express a kind of a shared sense that something is broken in our democracy. That's what historian John Grinspan sees now. But he says Americans in the past felt the same way, and they fought to fix their democracy. Many of our problems have, if not identical moments in the past, parallel and similar tendencies in our democracy across time. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. The U.S. State Department says it was likely an Israeli soldier who unintentionally shot and killed Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh in May. She was reporting for Al Jazeera on an Israeli operation against armed Palestinians when she was shot in the head. As NPR's Daniel Estrin reports, it's not a closed case for Palestinians or Israelis. After some Congress members called on the State Department to get more involved, the U.S. convinced the Palestinian Authority to hand over the fatal bullet this weekend. U.S. officials oversaw a ballistics investigation conducted by Israeli experts. The State Department says the bullet was too damaged to match it to a weapon. But reviewing official Israeli and Palestinian investigations, the U.S. concluded gunfire from Israeli army positions was, quote, likely responsible. Israel isn't ready to go that far. Defense Minister Benny Gantz. Unfortunately, it is not possible to determine the source of the shooting. And as such, the investigation will continue. The U.S. says it found no evidence the shooting was intentional and notes Israeli soldiers were battling Palestinian militants at the time following deadly attacks in Israel. Defense Minister Gantz deflected responsibility. The first to bear responsibility in such events are the terrorists who operate from within population centers. Israeli human rights group B'Tselem accused the U.S. of helping Israel, quote, whitewash a crime. The Palestinian Authority rejected the U.S. claim that the bullet yields no answers. The Abu Akhle family opposed letting Israelis examine the bullet and said the U.S. conclusion achieves little. It's more like a cold comfort, you know. It's, uh, it's like putting uh, salt on, on a wound. It's not acceptable. Abu Akhle's brother Anton told NPR he expects more. The U.S. government are able to put the needed pressure on Israel to be held accountable, to identify whoever is responsible, and to bring them to justice. It's very simple. It can be done. The State Department mentioned next steps in accountability, but didn't specify. A week before President Biden visits the region, a U.S. attempt at answers leaves open questions. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. For many in the U.S., the 4th of July is a day of barbecues and fireworks, a celebration of the country's independence. This year, we wanted to know what this day means to listeners who emigrated here and how that meaning might have changed since they first arrived. Here's what a few of them had to say. My name is Cristela Acevedo, and I moved here from Nicaragua. I remember distinctly one Fourth of July, where it was during a time of, of our country where there was a lot of turbulence and negative rhetoric in the media about immigrants. And I honestly was not feeling very proud to be an American at that point. And then I asked my mother-in-law, who herself, she immigrated from Colombia. I asked her, well, what do you think makes America great? And she said, I think it's the immigrants. And that response really impacted me because I started consciously realizing the many contributions that immigrants make and that we bring so much flavor and uniqueness and diversity to this country. And it just made me feel proud again to be not only an immigrant, but an American. Sometimes I just want to rest on 4th of July. I just want to have the barbecue and go to the beach and hang out with friends. 
but I, there's always something in the back of my mind that says, well, not everyone feels like this. And so I have to give myself grace to celebrate and, and to rest from advocacy and all of that, but not totally forget about it. It really is such a balance. My name is Al Resh Jaywardino. I've moved to Newburgh, New York on 4th of July, 1991 from Colombo, Sri Lanka. Initially, we celebrated our arrival here and we did the pageantry, the hot dogs, hamburgers. And even once I joined the military, it, it was so much more post 9-11. Of course, as the decades wore on and I spent more time overseas in the Middle East, it made me change my viewpoint. And now it's more of a day to remember how I got here. I don't know if I can really celebrate at the moment because over the last couple of years, the flag, it wasn't flown in like a friendly sort of way. It was almost like a threat. You know, you have to be a patriot waving the flag to be American. The fourth, it, it's, I think it's a day of reckoning for a lot of people now. My name is Amir Sharifi. I am an Iranian American. My wife and I moved to this country about 13 years ago. My first 4th of July experience, we made a small trip to Chattanooga, Tennessee to visit some friends and we celebrated 4th of July by watching fireworks on the banks of Tennessee River. And it was splendid and beautiful. At the time, my biggest dream was to become an American and celebrate 4th of July with my fellow Americans. And that became reality last year when I became a naturalized American citizen with my wife. And then a little bit after that, my daughter was born. So this year marks her first 4th of July, but this year our celebration won't be a typical one. I am heartbroken for families in Uvalde, Texas, who lost their children and loved ones. But most importantly, I am sad and disappointed in the recent rulings of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade which took away the most basic rights and freedoms from half of the population, including my wife and my daughter. So this year, we won't be watching fireworks. We decided that we're gonna take a long walk and contemplate. We are going to talk about what we gained, what we have, and what we've just recently lost. My name is Nigel Gomba Komba. I immigrated from Zimbabwe in the year 2002. Over the years, the 4th of July holiday brings me to a space where I think about, hey, where are we going as far as liberty and freedom and independence as the original goal of the founders of the nation? Are we living up to those ideals? Um, are people really free? The thing that consoles me is that when you look at the history of the United States, there's always been a struggle to get all these rights and equality. So looking at how people actually practice democracy and fight for their rights and everything, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that's what makes the nation one of the greatest nations in the world. What I hope is that there will be some sort of reconciliation within society to eventually come and accept what historically has happened. I think that's probably part of the challenge is like, understanding and accepting the history so that people can celebrate.
That was Nigel Gombakomba, Amir Shaifi, Alresh Jaywardina, and Christelle Acevedo, all immigrants to the U.S., reflecting on the July 4th holiday and what it means to them. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from EBSCO, providing access to ebooks and research content on the go with EBSCO mobile app. Information about EBSCO's commitment to researchers is at EBSCO.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified at duckduckgo.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox started up their three-game set today with the Tampa Bay Rays by blanking them 4 nothing. Cutter Crawford had five and a third scoreless innings. The Yankees graced Fenway Park for a four-game series toward the end of the week. Could barely ask for a nicer 4th of July. Some sunshine and fair weather clouds into the evening hours. Partly cloudy skies tonight. Lows about 64 degrees. Tomorrow should bring partly sunny skies. There is the off chance of a shower tomorrow. Light breezes up around 86 degrees. And then for Wednesday, should be sunshine again. Some strong gusts of wind. Slightly cooler, about 81 degrees. 82 degrees now in Boston at 559. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A suspect who opened fire on a July 4th parade outside Chicago is still at large, and local residents are being asked to shelter in place. The gunman's believed to be a white male between 18 and 20 years old. He killed six people and wounded at least two dozen. It's Independence Day 2022, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, one small Mexican town's agonizing wait for the news of three of its young men they suspect may have been among the victims of the San Antonio human smuggling tragedy. And 170 years ago, Frederick Douglass gave one of his most famous speeches. His descendants gathered to read it aloud. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. What to the slave is the 4th of July coming up? It's one past six. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. As events celebrating the Independence Day holiday are taking place across the country, another horrific shooting today, this time in a suburb outside Chicago. Police there say six people are dead, at least 24 others are injured after a man armed with a semi-automatic weapon opened fire reportedly from a rooftop on a crowd in Highland Park, Illinois, as a 4th of July parade was taking place. Highland Park Police Commissioner Chris O'Neill describes the suspected gunman. Highland Park Police and numerous federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies are searching for the suspect. The suspect is currently described as a male white, approximately 18 to 20 years old, with longer black hair, a small build, and wearing a white or blue t-shirt. 
And police at this hour have identified a person of interest in connection with the shooting. They've identified him as Robert E. Cremo III, age 22, said to be driving a silver Honda Fit with Illinois plates. Police, meanwhile, recovered the rifle at the scene, but they say the suspect should still be considered armed and dangerous. Residents of the suburban town in Illinois remain stunned. Meanwhile, after the shooting, WBEZ's Anna Shevenko reports from Highland Park, where she talked to survivors. It's a somber scene in the driveway of the Hernandez family. Two relatives return from the hospital after being grazed by bullets that could have ended their lives. A third family member was shot in the head and didn't make it. Through tears, Diego Hernandez said it could have been worse. Everybody was there, all the aunties, all the kids. It was We were a group of like 30. It's heartbreaking. We, we did lose a family member, but like I said, it could have been worse. It could have been multiple. It could have been everybody. Others are still waiting to hear whether their loved ones survived. For NPR News, Amanda Savchenka in Highland Park. For the second time in just three months, there's been a deadly mass shooting in Sacramento, California. Mike Haggerty with Cap Radio reports one person was killed, four others were hurt early this morning. The gunfire erupted outside a downtown Sacramento nightclub near closing time. Ray Rodriguez was about to leave the club when it happened. All you hear is bah, 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 like straight up, like it's just automatic gunfire. Rodriguez and other patrons were kept inside by club security. Family members have identified the man who was killed as Greg Grimes, an assistant football coach at a Sacramento high school. The scene is four blocks from the California state capitol and six blocks from where a mass shooting in April killed six people and wounded 12. Police say it was a gang shooting that caught bystanders in the crossfire. Three people were arrested and charged in that incident. For NPR News, I'm Mike Haggerty in Sacramento. U.S. financial markets are closed for the 4th of July holiday, though there was trading overseas today. Stocks gained ground in London, Paris, Frankfurt, and Tokyo. Markets fell in Hong Kong. U.S. futures are down ahead of trading tomorrow. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston police are trying to identify members of the white supremacist group Patriot Front who marched through downtown Boston Saturday. The group wore masks and allegedly assaulted a black artist and activist, Charles Murrell. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, Murrell returned to the spot of the attack this morning to impart a message in song. He had a long chain on. Morell sang a traditional African-American spiritual near the steps of the Boston Public Library. Morell's hand was bandaged, and police reports show he was treated at Tufts Medical Center for injuries to his hands and face. He vowed to respond by helping others. I am appalled that even as a healer, I have to get my, my cup poured into in this incident. But in this incident, I will continue to pour into other people's cup as a way to pour into my own cup. Morell plans to hold a concert later this month in Copley Square. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu also condemned the march by the white supremacists over the weekend, calling the group, quote, cowardly and disgusting. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. And tomorrow at 12.30, Mayor Wu will hold a news briefing at Boston Police Headquarters about white supremacist activity in the region. Police are gearing up for tonight's Boston Pops Fireworks Spectacular. It is the first 4th of July concert on the Esplanade since 2019. Pop conductor Keith Lockhart says he's glad to be back performing at the Hatch Shell. 
He tells us why his favorite part of the show is John Philip Sousa's March, The Stars and Stripes Forever. Because I know it's the end of the concert and there are, there are so many things, so much pressure in live performance like that, especially when you've got, you know, four or, four or 500,000 people looking on, that I'm just greatly relieved because when I get to Stars and Stripes, I know that I'm on the home stretch. This year's Boston Pops Fireworks Spectacular starts at 8. It'll be headlined by legendary singer Shaka Khan. Fireworks are set for 10.30. The MBTA put its new orange and red line cars back in service this afternoon, just in time for the show tonight. They were taken off the tracks late last month after an out-of-service car experienced a failure in its battery compartment. All repairs were completed over the weekend. State transportation officials recommend taking the T tonight to get to the Esplanade. Subway lines are running on a normal weekday schedule and will be free after 9.30. And a Massachusetts man is the world's second best competitive hot dog eater. Oxford resident Jeffrey Esper finished second at the Nathan's International Hot Dog Eating Contest in Brooklyn today. Esper polished off 47 and a half hot dogs with buns in just 10 minutes. The winner is Joey Chestnut of Indiana. He was able to devour 63 dogs and buns. In the forecast, a nice dry night tonight, watching fireworks or whatever else. Just a few clouds around overnight lows, about 64 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny, maybe a quick afternoon shower. Highs about 86, cooling to about 81 on Wednesday. Mostly sunny skies. Can't get those hot dogs off my mind. 82 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. There has been another mass shooting, this one earlier today, at a 4th of July parade in Highland Park, Illinois. That's a suburb north of Chicago. Officials say six people are dead, and at least two dozen were taken to local hospitals. NPR's Cheryl Corley is on the scene and joins us now. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. So what are you seeing and hearing right now where you are? Well, right now we learned that the... uh Police have identified a person of interest. They've identified him as 22-year-old Robert E. Cremo III. He is believed to be driving a 2010 silver Honda Fit with Illinois plates. And authorities here say they are receiving tips from the police and following up. They also say that Cremo is from the area. He is considered armed and dangerous, and he goes by Bobby. So there's a big manhunt underway. He is still on the loose. Authorities say people in the area of the parade route no longer have to shelter in place, uh, but still have to be alert. Here's Chris O'Neill, the incident commander for the Highland Park Police Department. Highland Park Police and numerous federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies are searching for the suspect. The suspect is currently described as a male white, approximately 18 to 20 years old, with longer black hair, a small build, and wearing a white or blue t-shirt. And the police have uh, released a photo of him as well, that 22-year-old man, Robert Cremo, the suspect. O'Neill says they did recover a firearm, apparently a rifle at the scene, and the gunman fired from a rooftop. He was able to gain access to the roof of the building from a ladder that was attached to the building. And he says so far this is a random act. They haven't identified any motive. He also debunked rumors that the shooter had taken hostages. He said that's not accurate. 
Okay, let's let's step back for a little bit because all of this happened around 10, 15 a.m. your time. Obviously, several hours have passed. Can you just sort of amass the details of what you've learned in addition to what you've just reported, but how this all unfolded earlier today? Yeah, well, it was uh, a big parade, um, a Fourth of July parade uh, around 10 o'clock in the morning, and uh, shooting broke out, and uh, people just scattered everywhere, and uh, that was uh, essentially it. They had expected this to be, you know, a really uh, nice July 4th event, and it turned into this horrible scene, really devastating, uh, yeah. you know. And people were obviously, as you say, taking part in this happy celebration. I mean, in the time that has passed since you had a chance to talk to people, hear from officials, how is the community reacting? Really, they're devastated. I talked to one uh, gentleman who had been at the parade with his partner and their two children, and he said that they were just so frightened that he uh, actually put a couple of his kids in the dumpster, uh, you know, trying to to make sure that, that everybody was safe. You know, obviously, this comes in the context of mass shootings this year, uh, roughly 250 mass shooting incidents in the U.S. in 2022 so far, according to NPR's tally. And Highland Park Mayor Nancy Rotherling uh, spoke earlier at a press conference, and she called this an act of terrorism. Some hospitals did require going on bypass due to receiving uh, traumatic victims in such a high number of them. And their conditions range, some critical, some serious. Sounds like that, that was the one cut a, there. Yeah, that was Chris Corvelli with the uh, Lake County Sheriff's Office. And he was just kind of detailing, you know, who had the, the injuries of this. Six people dead. Uh, authorities have identified five of them as adults. Uh, one hasn't been identified, so we don't know if that was a child or an adult. But 24 people transported to hospitals. One of those victims was a child that was critically injured. That is NPR's Cheryl Corley reporting from Highland Park, Illinois. Thank you so much, Cheryl. You're welcome. to the American slave is your 4th of July? That is a question Frederick Douglass posed 170 Julys ago. A group of abolitionists had invited him to speak on the 4th, but he opted instead for the 5th and gave perhaps his most famous speech. That speech confronted the glaring hypocrisy of a day celebrating freedom in a country that still endorsed the bondage and forced labor of more than one in eight of its residents. And while the institution of slavery has been abolished, its consequences have endured through the generations. I'm the great, great, great granddaughter of Frederick, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass is my great, 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 I've been great. counting on my fingers since yeah. I was like five. I am the great, 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 great grandchild of Frederick Douglass. Two years ago, NPR asked some of Frederick Douglass's descendants to read excerpts of that speech, one that still troubles the conscience of America. And today, we thought we would revisit his words. This is the 4th of July. It is the birthday of your national independence and of your political freedom. Fellow citizens, I shall not presume to dwell at length on the associations that cluster about this day. The simple story of it is that 76 years ago, the people of this country were British subjects. Oppression makes a wise man mad. 
your fathers were wise men, and if they did not go mad, they became restive under this treatment. With brave men, there's always a remedy for oppression. They succeeded, and today you reap the fruits of their success. The freedom gained is yours, and you, therefore, may properly celebrate this anniversary. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent to do, with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty and unholy license. Your national greatness, swelling vanity. Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings. With all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. The 4th of July still doesn't mean that much. Um, we're still second-class citizens. I don't think it's hopeless. Somebody once said that pessimism is a tool of white oppression, and I think that's true. I think in many ways we are still um, slaves to the notion that it will never get better.
but I think that there is hope um, and I think it's important that we celebrate black joy and black life and we remember that change is possible, change is probable, um, and that there's hope. was Isidore Douglas Skinner. You also heard Alexa Ann Watson, Haley Rose Watson, Zoe Douglas Skinner, and Douglas Washington Morris II, all of them descendants of Frederick Douglas, reading his speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. You can watch a video of that reading and more of their reflections at npr.org. Protest movements can spur different ideologies, new policies, and sometimes new playlists. Some of the most popular songs in American history began as responses to or calls for social change. Hear more about their history and why this year's Song of the Summer could very well be a song of protest. Today on the Consider This podcast from NPR News. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come, fireworks are a fixture of 4th of July celebrations, but some communities suffering from a drought have turned to a less flammable display from drones. So we've got like a diamond shape and then a circle shape. We're standing almost right under it. How drones are helping to replace fireworks still to come on WBUR. Wall Street is closed for the 4th of July. Good news if you're headed behind the wheel for the Independence Day holiday. The average price of regular gas in Massachusetts has dropped to $4.85 a gallon. According to AAA, that's eight cents lower than a week ago and slightly above the national average. This 4th of July also marks the 150th anniversary of the birth of the country's 30th president, Calvin Coolidge was born in Vermont in 1872. He attended Amherst College and settled in Massachusetts. He was the mayor of Northampton and served in the state Senate before he became governor of Massachusetts in 1919 and eventually president in the 1920s. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Farmers Markets. Summer vacation season is here. Explore all the delicious locally produced foods Massachusetts has to offer at farmers markets, restaurants, and specialty grocers. Learn where to find the best food at eatlikealocalandma.org. Funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. Should have a nice dry night for watching the fireworks. A few clouds around. Overnight lows about 64. Tomorrow partly sunny. Maybe a quick afternoon shower. Highs around 86. Then about 81 degrees again on Wednesday with mostly sunny skies. 82 now in Boston. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. 
For many of the families of the migrants who died after being transported in a sweltering trailer in San Antonio, Texas, the past week has been agonizing. Authorities have urged patients as they scrambled to identify the 53 victims of what is being called one of the worst human smuggling tragedies on U.S. soil. As NPR's Kerry Khan reports, this weekend, relatives of three young men from a small town in Mexico finally learned the heartbreaking news. Pickup trucks loaded with freshly cut firewood gunned up the steep road in front of Bilbano Olveras' home in the small town tucked into the lush mountains in Mexico's Gulf state of Veracruz. Men dumped the logs beside a black tarp shielding the steady stream of mourners who've come to pay their respects. We need a lot of wood for cooking to feed everyone, says Olivares. Here, everyone shares in the suffering of the families, he says. Olivares' three grandchildren, brothers Giovanni, 16, and Jair, 20, as well as their cousin, Misael, also 16, were all in the Texas trailer. Authorities last week notified relatives that Misael had been found dead. On Saturday, Olivares says authorities summoned the family to the capital, an hour ride down the mountain. Even then, we were still holding out hope they were alive, he said. But no. His daughter, Yolanda Olivares, says at least now she knows her boys are with God. I'm sad right now, but a lot more calm. Now I know they're no longer suffering, alone in a hospital bed fighting for their lives, not knowing where they were. It's all been such a nightmare. Olivares stares forward, her eyes puffy from days of crying and no sleep. She sits on the small stoop of her modest house. Inside, the front room is filled with pictures of her boys and burning candles. Life here is hard, she says. It's a small town, known in this region for making shoes. Like most everyone here, her sons cut leather, fitted soles and sewed shoes in small workshops. Pay isn't much, at most 50 pesos a pair. One makes about 50 U.S. dollars a week. That's if you sew fast. Bells summon residents who trickle down the town's dirt paths and steep streets onto the church's central square for evening mass. The crowd fills the simple wooden pews. Father Andres Hernandez Solano reads the names of the three who perished. He tells me it's hard to find the words to console his parishioners. He says so many have migrated recently. Several told me as many as 50 have left the town in recent months. Father Hernandez says before leaving, young men ask for his blessing. He begs them not to go. But he says Mexicans are hard workers and yearn to get ahead. And the United States takes advantage of the cheap labor, he says. So why not have a more humane immigration policy? Give these boys temporary visas to go work and be able to come back home alive. 
Outside the boys' home, dozens of women slap out tortillas and serve up bean soup to mourners still coming by. One of the boys' uncle, Mateo Ruiz, says it's hard to convince the town's young men not to migrate. The lure of dollars is strong. Many might not migrate for a while now because of the tragedy, he says, but soon they'll head north again. He actually worked in Chicago for a few years and hears from relatives that there's a lot of work and money to be made in the U.S. now. It's tempting. Makes you think about going again and working for a bit, he says. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, San Marcos, Texquilapan, Veracruz. Big fireworks displays are a staple for many 4th of July celebrations, but a hotter and drier climate in the West is making it too dangerous to set them off. So more places are now switching to a less flammable alternative. Colorado Public Radio's Matt Bloom has more. Connected, not looking good. Okay, what's our pre-flight air? Graham Hill is sitting at a computer overlooking a big grassy field in suburban Denver, where he's just finished setting up a small army of drones for takeoff. There's 20 to be exact, each about the size of toy cars with four propeller blades. Looking good, okay, on the map. They're arranged in a five by four grid on the ground, each fixed with a light bulb that's currently flashing a bright blue color in unison. When they finish syncing together, they start beeping. Hill then presses the space bar on his laptop and they take off into the sky in perfect synchronization. Once they're about 50 feet up, their lights change to different colors of the rainbow and float around to form different shapes in midair. So we got like a diamond shape and then a circle shape. We're standing almost right under it. And so sometimes it can look like they're about to hit each other, but they're actually all, all about 10 feet apart at all times. Hill's Colorado-based company, Hire UAV Pro, puts on drone shows all over the world. It's still a niche industry, but growing fast, Hill says. Communities from Colorado to California have hired his team to design patriotic shows to replace their traditional fireworks. They've gotten more requests than they could handle this year from places concerned about fire danger, from Idaho to New Mexico to Texas. As soon as we turned on our website and started advertising and putting a couple videos out there, it's... And we probably had like 300, 400 requests for the 4th of July. The shows only last about 15 minutes due to limited battery life. Jeremy Gross, an event coordinator with the town of Vail, says they spent about $100,000 on this year's show, three times more than fireworks would cost. It does take a commitment from the communities that are making this change to step up to the plate and spend that money to reduce the risk and provide a new and creative experience. They're worth it, Gross says, because they're less likely to start a catastrophic wildfire and less prone to last-minute cancellations due to high fire danger. Plus, they can make formations that people likely haven't seen before. You can put an eagle in the sky and the eagle actually flaps its wings. You know, the uh, old glory, when you put the flag up, it waves and it, you know, moves and can transition. Some towns, though, are sticking with traditional fireworks, but with additional safety precautions. Estes Park, on the outskirts of Rocky Mountain National Park, is shooting their fireworks over a large lake as a safety measure, says town spokeswoman Kate Rush. I feel lucky that we have a large body of water. That, that's a big deal for us. Back at the July 4th show rehearsal, Graham Hill wraps up his test flight. Feels good every time. <laughs> he says he only sees demand going up as communities look for ways to adapt to a drier climate, even if the shows are missing some of the traditional elements of fireworks, like the loud booms and a big, bright finale. We're like the iPhone 1 
of drone light shows right now. And I expect in five years we're going to be able to do a near hour-long drone show. They will still have his favorite part, though, the music. He's personally excited to see the drones form the letters USA in red, white, and blue, as Ray Charles' version of America the Beautiful plays in the background. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bloom in Denver. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAF CPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com.